It's November 23rd. It's the one-year anniversary of our first episode of Real Talk. This episode, just like the 227 episodes before it, is proudly presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. Why use Bitcoin Well? You've heard about all the apps. You have ShakePay on your phone. Why do you need Bitcoin Well? It's the fastest and safest way to buy Bitcoin. It's non-custodial, which means somebody else isn't holding it. You don't have to ask them to give it to you. It's already yours. And they've established themselves with more than 200 ATMs across Canada as Canada's primary and only publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company, coast to coast to coast. Learn more about them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Good morning and welcome to Real Talk. I'm Ryan Jesperson and we are thrilled uh, to have you here with us on our very first show. This is episode one. This is our inaugural broadcast. We're coming to you live. Of course, you're probably watching us right now on our YouTube channel and we're thrilled to have you here as we build something special. It feels partly like we're building something. It also feels a little bit like we're bringing a community back together. It feels good to be with you again. It feels good to be in front of a microphone again, and it feels good to be able to talk about the issues that matter right now. That was one year ago today from this very spot, from this very studio. That that was me trembling inside, wondering if this pretty bird that we'd birthed could actually fly. From the technical side, we wondered. From the editorial side, we were okay. From the audience side, we didn't know. Nobody had really done it before. We had never really done it before. But boy, did you show up one year ago today. And boy, have you shown up all year. An absolutely unbelievable day today. Our buckets are full as we mark the one-year anniversary. The first season, if you will, into season two of Real Talk. An unbelievable lineup today in just a moment. Legendary Canadian author and global thinker Malcolm Gladwell. And later on in the broadcast, about an hour from now, we're going to talk to top criminal defense attorney Marie Hennon. Plus, we're going to look back at the top five Real Talk moments to this point as identified by you through our question of the week presented by our research and strategy partners at Y Station. We're going to be keeping a keen eye on our hashtag on Twitter today, Real Talk RJ. We want to see your thoughts, your highlights. What's something that jumps out at you from today's show? Is it going to be something that Malcolm says in just a moment? I'm buckled up, ready for him. What about something that Marie Hennon has to say later on in the show? Tweet at us your highlight using the hashtag Real Talk RJ. And one audience member by the end of today is going to win $500. No strings attached. Somebody on Twitter said, oh, so you're paying people to listen now. I said, yeah, it's what all the media outlets do. It's a promotion. In all seriousness, what it is, is it's our way of saying thank you to you. It's also a $500 chunk donated by a real talker who demands they stay anonymous. I said, let me mention your first name. Let me mention your company. They said, nah, we just want to be part of this like we have been all year. 
unbelievable. Malcolm Gladwell in just a minute. First, I want to remind you that the team at Local Waste has been with us since day one providing construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection. I told you there's a big local waste bin a few blocks away from our house right now. They're redoing the exterior siding in the roof. Local waste from start to finish manages that relationship so it's headache-free. You can go online for a quote today at localwaste.ca. And don't forget, on Friday, Local Waste presents Trash Talk, your chance to get a little something off your chest by way of emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We're also proud to be partnering with Kubi Renewable energy they provide solar energy solutions to power your life you can go online right now to get a free quote kubienergy.ca plus keep in mind they're up to speed on all the government promotions all of the ways that you can keep more cash in your pocket like one specifically for agriculture for example jake the ceo there, telling me all about it you can find out more online at kubienergy.ca Well, our next guest really doesn't need any introduction, but we'll provide one anyway. He's a TED speaker. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's a seven-time New York Times bestselling author. He was named to Times List, Time Magazine, of the 100 most influential people on planet Earth. He's the president of Pushkin Industries. He is the host of the wildly popular Revisionist History podcast, and he has just released a new audio book, Miracle and wonder an unreal portrayal of legendary musician paul simon what a thrill it is to welcome to real talk malcolm gladwell thank you for making time for us this morning and welcome to the show thank you it's my pleasure i had a chance i took the dog for a long walk last night and checked out miracle and and wonder and it's absolutely a marvelous bit of storytelling of course anybody can listen to paul simon all day including you but the way you tell the story too there's really something special about it. You're you're this unique blend. You're you're an incredible writer, you're a talented thinker, but you're also a master storyteller when it comes to the spoken word. Not everybody has that trifecta. Did you know you had it early? Well, no. <laughs> I, I I these are things you discover. Um but they're they're more than that. They're things you develop. You know, I began doing my podcast revisionist history um, what, six, 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 six years ago now. Um, and I've been working on that side of, you know, I was up to that point really someone who, who wrote books. Didn't, I wasn't, I escape talks every now and again, but um, getting into audio, you know, it, it, it flexes that muscle. And I fell af- feel after kind of five, six years of doing revisionist history, I was ready to tackle a, a project as ambitious as this, um, as this miracle and wonder, um, what is it? It's a kind of a, a portrait of Paul Simon, but he's in the room with you. I mean, it's not like at remove. It's, it's me and my friend Bruce sitting down with Paul Simon for, uh, we, we probably talked to him for 30, 40 hours and like distilled that down to five hours of this audiobook miracle and wonder. It's, uh, I think going to be of interest to people that it's not simply I, I mean, it certainly is an homage in your way. And you make it very clear the the status uh, uh, where, where you place Paul Simon. You talk about Stevie Wonder. And I want to get to that in just a second and sort of the, this elite group of American storytellers and, and songwriters. But, but you don't shy away from 
criticizing his career in ways. I mean, in your own way of storytelling, you talk about how, you know, today's trend of, of the general public wanting artists to stay in their cultural lane. And and you talk about Paul Simon to a certain degree as inauthentic with regards to his own musical roots and his projects. How important was it for you to to take on some of that stuff that some people might leave alone with a project like this? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say that it was you're right. I mean, we wanted to kind of give an honest appraisal of his career. And when I talk about him being inauthentic, it's really meant not as a criticism, but as a description that his notion today, we have a very, I think, unacceptably narrow notion of what authenticity is. And today, you know, today we say you are authentic when you are true to your own specific cultural tradition. He grew up at a time and a place when we didn't hold artists to those uh, that kind of standard, where we said if you were an artist, you were free to move within the confines of your, uh, like if you were a musician, you you could you could contribute or partake of the world of music wherever that took you, and that's the perspective Paul has, um, and a perspective that has fallen out of favor. Uh, you know, one that, I raised that question in the context of the album Graceland, and wondering whether that album could be made today. Could a white musician from New York City go to South Africa and make a music that combined his own musical experiences with those of uh, of another country, another culture entirely? We're not we're not good with that today, um, and I think that's a problem. I I think that we should allow artists to artists should make be free to make art, and. The result of him going to another country and working with a completely new set of musicians was one of the greatest albums of the 20th century. I was, I'm grateful that you took it there already because I wanted to ask you if it's a good thing or not. Uh, we, we've been having r- rather fulsome discussions on this show over a series of days um, about representation in media. Mm-hmm. In particular, uh, conversations around people with disabilities acting in certain roles or people without disabilities portraying people with disabilities, uh, straight actors playing uh, LGBTQ2S plus characters, etc. What's your take on, on representation? Whether or not uh, it's okay for a straight actor to play a gay character or whether or not it's okay for someone without a disability to portray someone that's living with one. Yeah. Well, it strikes me there's two questions here um, that sometimes get confused. One is that um, should any profession be open to as many, as wide a group of people as possible? Absolutely. And in order to do that, professions have to look very honestly and long and hard at their own hiring practices, at their own networks. They have to make sure they don't have biases that are keeping people out. So that part of the representation argument, I'm 100% in favor of. When we're talking about making art, I am profoundly uncomfortable with the idea that we would have some kind of um, very narrow and specific and prescriptive notion about who can do what and who can play what. You know, there's a point in the book where I'm talking about an episode early on in Paul's life as a musician. He goes down to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, um, and he's making, I've forgotten what song at the moment, and it's a, but it's a reggae song, and he's gathered together. He brings with him a gospel singer, a falsetto singer from New York, a legendary gospel singer. He goes to a legendary R&B studio in Alabama. He asks a, a New Orleans marching band 
to come and join them. And they're doing a reggae song, actually a calypso song. So he has combined gospel, R&B, New Orleans marching band, calypso, with his own tradition in one song. Now, people, some people will be horrified by that. My thing is, no, no, that's, if you're an artist, you should be free to let your imagination run wild and you should be free. Paul would say, and I think this is a very important point, he would say, I'm a musician. I belong to the world of musicians and music. And music doesn't know any boundaries. You know, the musicians from all over the world borrow from each other, learn from each other, share what they do. You can't come in with and, and apply this kind of very narrow, um, like I say, uh, restrictive definition to say, well, you can't do that. And an artist, you tell an artist you can't do that, they're going to do it, right? I mean, that's what artists do. And if do I want to live in a world where artists are are following some kind of weird rule book about what they can and can't do? I don't want to live in that world. Mm. We've we have in previous generations lived in that world where people tell artists what they can do, and those are not pleasant places for anyone, right? You talk. Uh in the project, in, in Miracle and Wonder about, uh, you know, filmmaker Martin Scorsese, for example, or, or, or legendary musician uh, Stevie Wonder. And, and you talk about how the art tells us something about the artist. Uh, yeah. What does your art, uh, your literary work, your podcasting, I mean, your thoughts, what does your art tell us about you, Malcolm Gladwell? Well, I'm a, I'm a small town boy from... Southwestern Ontario. I am, I am, I am a product of 1970s Canada. The one of the great places to grow up in the world, um, maybe the greatest. I mean, uh, and you know, I was I was someone who was taught that um, if you grow up in that environment, the Canada I grew up in, and it's still the same as the Canada is today, is a place that was where the world was your oyster, right? Where we let in everyone from all over the world. We we learned about everyone from all over the world. We res we had respect for all kinds of different ideas. We we went out of our way to accommodate, you know, the the French Canadian cultural tradition when virtually any other country in the world would have just ground it out, right? Would have just got rid of it. You know, Canada is this kind of and I that's the tradition I operate in that you you you're you 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 belong to the whole world you can explore whatever ideas you want you can go wherever you want you can you know you have that freedom um you know i remember as when i was in toronto in college getting on the subway and looking around the subway and just seeing people from everywhere just thinking like it's amazing you know like what an amazing experiment canada is and i consider myself a product of that experiment that amazing experiment We'll be uh, a little bit later on in this show taking a look at what our audience has told us by way of our question of the week. Are, are there top five moments or the ways that we've covered stories, some of the episodes or some of the themes throughout the first year that have really jumped out at them? One of those is a conversation around truth and reconciliation in Canada. It's, it's mm -hmm. been a very difficult, obviously, year of conversations, in particular the last six months here. I don't have to tell you. I know with the discovery of thousands of unmarked graves outside former residential schools as a Canadian, how has this resonated with you? And where's your head at on what meaningful reconciliation would look like? 
You know, I don't, uh, I mean, I am respectful of uh, all of the um, thought and intelligence and courage that has gone into those discussions. Um, I'm not sure I, I am deeply sympathetic with that project. It's long overdue. And I think lots of other cultures should um, uh, should follow suit. Um, I mean, I can think there's an awful lot of work that could be done in this in the United States about um, on that on that very theme towards African Americans um, that has not been done. So Canada can be a kind of um, can uh, can be a model for other countries and should be um, to bring you know to bring it back to Paul Simon for a moment. Um, you know, because I think that. Looking at an album like Graceland with the passage of time, so that's it's been 35 years since that album came out. Um, what is that album about? It's fundamentally about uh, somebody discovering um, another culture and with joy and with empathy and with warmth and bringing that discovery back to the rest of us who had no opportunity. In 1985, what did the average music listener know about South African music, nothing, right? South Africa was a pariah state with closed borders, and somebody went there and told the rest of the world about what was going on musically in that part of the world, and kicked off, Paul Simon, I think it is correct to say, is one of the key, hit that album, Graceland, is one of the key uh, um, steps in the growth of world music. Um, in this world we live in now where there is, we do, you can, you know, he then went and made an album where he showcased Brazilian musicians and brought Brazilian music to the forefront in the Western world. Um, you know, there's a, so there's, there's something about like, um, uh, I think that goes hand in glove with this notion of truth and, re and reconciliation. It's present day um, showcasing and respect and discovery of different musical traditions. And says, and it says, if you are a you know privileged white person, you know, living in southwestern Ontario or New York City, you don't, you know, you don't just have to listen to music from your own culture. You should feel free to 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 roam the world and learn what other people are doing. And it takes cultural ambassadors to to bring that music to us. It's a, it's a tough, does. or maybe it's a fine line, or a tough balance, or maybe it's just one of the gray areas where, where we commit to live in. Um, mm -hmm. It's where we want this show to dwell all the time. But finding that line of of you know cultural discovery and the conversation about Paul Simon as an example. And then what people are talking about now with cultural appropriation and and yeah. people are people are, I think, wrestling with or, or starting to process concepts that, quite frankly, have not been part of the public dialogue uh, ever. And, yeah. and and I think it's it's really interesting because now people are starting to try to process their own lives and actions and interests, uh, their own accountability if you will, through a lens that might be new to them. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think there are a lot of gray areas along the way with that. So we, you know, we tackled this in the chapter of Miracle and Wonder on Graceland. It's really structured around a long interview we did with Bikiti Kumala, who's the bassist uh, who plays on Graceland and who is a South African musician who um, Paul invites, when, when Paul Simon goes to Johannesburg, um, in the early 80s, he invites Bikiti, among others, a whole group of South African musicians, to join him in the studio. And they're making music in the studio. It's not like Paul came in with songs written and they played on it. They 
you know, together created this music. And I was very curious to hear, you know, with the perspective of 30 years, what did Kumalo, uh, Kumalo, uh, how did he feel about that? And, you know, here's someone who was part of that culture, and this guy comes from New York City, shows up in his country when no, no, you know, most people from the West were no longer going to South Africa, made music with him. How did he feel about that? Did he feel like it was uh, a violation? Did he feel like he, um, his, his culture had been appropriated unfairly? And the answer was, no, no, no. He felt that was an extraordinary opportunity for his music and his culture to be showcased around the world. I think Graceland is a model for how to do it right. And a reminder that before uh, unheard voices can be heard, someone's got to open the door, right? And if we close those doors, if we say, stay in your lane, don't you dare write about anything that's not in your own tradition, we may never hear those other voices, right? Do we really want to live in a world where white people listen to white music and never and mus white musicians never get to experiment with other musical traditions or a world where black musicians don't get to experiment with white music? I mean, I think that's crazy. It goes back to the distinction I was saying earlier that there is a difference between art and, and professional practice. And we are trying to shoehorn art into a model where it doesn't fit. Um, people in the way we structure our society very much ought to follow these moral principles of inclusion and respect for different cultures. But art, artists must be free to make art. And I think there's, there's a, that's an absolute in my book. You hadn't uh, yet turned 40 when The Tipping Point came out. Uh, I'm not sure if it blows your mind that that book's been out for more than 20 years. It was my introduction to Malcolm Gladwell, as a matter of fact. Interesting study into an investigation into fads and how mm -hmm. fads develop, how trends develop. How much has changed uh, from the year 2000 when that book came out until, you know, to what you observe around fads or culture trends present day? Well, with the internet, I mean, the, that book was written really before we understood the propulsive power of the internet. Mm. Um, and I was describing the mechanics of how I felt ideas spread. And I was using the model of the epidemic, um, which is oddly, uh, oddly relevant today. But um, what's happened since, of course, is that the internet has, has, has supercharged all of those social dynamics I'm talking about. You know, I, for example, I was in that book talk about um, connectors. There are, you know, this small group of people who have an outsized social network, um, and they play this disproportionately large role in spreading ideas. Well, now a connector, instead of reaching, you know, a thousand people, can reach a million people, right? I mean, now a connector has got 500,000 followers on YouTube, or, you know, 800,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, that's something that I didn't imagine back in 19, you know, the 1999 when I was writing The Tipping Point. So it's like we've kind of, we've put those cultural dynamics I was talking about on steroids. And for better or worse, I mean, I'm not entirely convinced the world, that, that the present way we have of, if you think about, you know, how, how quickly and, um, uh, you know, really deeply worrisome ideas can spread now and how we've created these kind of subcultures that are f feeding on falsehood. 
um, on you know, as a result of Twitter or Facebook. Um, that's pretty scary, you know. Uh, um, so I have mixed feelings about this new world we live in. But um, the the tipping point was was a. It's interesting to look back on that as a as a pre-internet book. I was fascinated by an episode of The Bomber Mafia. The, the, your your revisionist history feature season five, uh, The Bomber Mafia. This feature uh, on, on these. I mean, I mean, essentially, it was maybe, the, although I've got to be careful in how I frame this, because I suppose anything, if you look back through history, then look forward, could be considered modern in context. Mm-hmm. But it was it was an early manifestation or an early approach to so-called modern warfare. These bomber pilots uh, that, as, as you describe, tried to find this balance or were driven by this balance of, of tactically and technically what they mm-hmm. believed they could pull off to win a war, to win a battle. Well, at the same time, we're driven by a, a certain morality or, or a certain yeah. code of ethics. And, and you explore the idea of how that's not always how decisions are made moving forward. Could, for the audience that may not have heard this episode of Revisionist History, could you take us into the theory and what particularly jumped out at you that it that it deserved such a focus? Yeah, so I later, uh, I turned those episodes into a book called The Bummer Mafia, which uh, another one of these, an audio book, which is, it's also a print book, but it's, very similar to the Paul Simon Project in that it's an audiobook where we take all the interviews, the tape of the interviews, and all this archival interview. You know, it's like kind of a, almost like an audio documentary. And I was interested in this idea that at the beginning of the Second World War, there was this group of renegade pilots who called themselves the Bomber Mafia, who wanted to reform warfare, who had been so horrified by the First World War and the kind of mindless carnage of that war that they wanted to figure out, was there a way for two people to fight in a major conflict and not leave hundreds of thousands of civilians dead and not have these kind of colossal losses. And they, they wanted to use technology to do it, and they, wanted to, they thought that precision bombing, if you could drop a bomb exactly where you wanted the bomb to land, that was a way of reforming war. And I was drawn to the story for the very reason you say, which was that I was so touched and moved by the notion that a group of technological pioneers would have had as one of their primary motivations a moral impulse. You know, this takes me back to my small town Ontario roots. Um, You know, uh, in the little town Elmira where I grew up, which had, I think, 14 churches and 3,000, 4,000 people. Did you grow up religious? Yes, oh yes, profoundly, yes. Moral considerations were really important. It was. You know, in the culture I grew up in, that's you started with that premise. When you did something, you asked, was it the right decision? Does it make, is it a fulfillment of biblical practice? Is it, does it make the world a better place? And I feel like that notion, which f- very much fired the Bonner Mafia, that was what was fueling them, has become absent in a lot of technological innovation. That we're asking what makes money or what makes our world more efficient, or we're not asking what makes the world in a moral sense a better place. And I, I, I wanted to write that book, The Bomber Mafia, because I wanted people to, I wanted that, to bring that idea back to the conversation, to say it's not weird to ask that question. It's actually the right question to start with. 
you're uh, in closing and we're grateful for your time today to say the least uh, you're the president of pushkin industries it's uh, a, a new media a digital media venture certainly exciting obviously um, you've got a huge following with the revisionist history podcast this broken record uh, solvable and others uh, what's your perspective on the future of, of new or digital or independent media? You have you have the luxury and the, it's kind of the rare status of of having seen success in media on a number of different traditional platforms. What does the so-called mm. media of the future look like to you? Oh, wow. Well, I think um, I would say a couple of things. One, that it becomes increasingly international. I think that's a part that we sometimes overlook, but, you know, you can be in Gambia and you can listen to revisionist history as easily as you can if you live in Mississauga. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really interesting, right? Um, and for free in both places. That, that's not been true ever in the history of, of media. Um, the other thing, and this is what Pushkin is very much interested in, is we, I think there's gonna be a continued continue movement to the ears over the eyes that there, um, there are things that can be done with audio that can't be done in print um, and really can't be done in um, broadcast medium um, that, make, that make audio the, make it the genre of the future in a certain sense. And we're trying to, with books like Miracle Wonder or Bomber Mafia, we're trying to kind of exploit what audio can do. You know, do a book about a musician and why would you, like I say, why would you write a book about a musician? <laughs> no, you want to listen to the musician. Let's write a, let's do a book about a musician where you're listening to him the whole time. That, that's, to my, to my mind, using the, using the medium the right way. Well, I'll tell you, uh, as mentioned, I'm, I'm listening to Miracle and Wonder and, uh, and I'm walking my dog and, and you get just maybe two or three bars of Paul Simon just just spontaneously plucking away on on when will I be loved talking about Mick Fleetwood and and let me tell you I hit pause on the podcast to then listen to the Cheryl Crow and Emmy Lou Harris version to listen to the Linda Ronstadt version to listen to all these different versions uh -huh. and then I went back to hear Paul Simon's little reprise again and continue on I with love the that. podcast that's the that's the way that's the way you could listen to this book yeah it's an invitation just to immerse yourself in the in the mind of a musical genius and you should like I how so many people have told me that's exactly what they do they they pause it and they go down a little rabbit hole then they come back you, it's a you, great experience you, you're talking about Graceland you're talking uh, about if a, if an artist could pull that off today I went and listened to Graceland I came back um, an unbelievable experience obviously you draw on people's curiosity your enthusiasm as it has for the better part of your entire career is so evident there and it's what sets your project apart from so many others uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new audiobook Miracle and Wonder uh, an amazing portrait of Paul Simon now available. You can subscribe to his podcast, Revisionist History, and check out what else they're doing digitally with Pushkin Industries. It's been a thrill to have you here on the show, Malcolm Gladwell. Thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you, Ryan. It's been really fun. You can let us know about a highlight that jumped out at you from our conversation with Malcolm. Tweet at us using the hashtag RealTalkRJ. We're going to pick our favorite tweet, our favorite observation of the day at the end of today once the podcast lands once people have had a chance to go on their own dog walks and check out these interviews and as mentioned thanks to the generous donation from a real talker who demands to remain anonymous we're going to award five hundred dollars to somebody is as our thank you for being part of this first year on the show
Our friends at Breathe Outdoors want to remind you that while the logo, the name may be new, they've been around and trusted since the 1960s. The store formerly known as Campers Village has a fresh new look, acknowledging that while you may not be into camping, maybe maybe hiking or paddling or or snowshoeing or climbing or or, or maybe adventure travels your thing. Maybe as you're walking your dog, listening to Real Talk right now, you're realizing that there's a, a bit of a leak in your winter boots or the gloves aren't as good as they used to be. Maybe you need some quality outdoor gear, maybe done by the North Face or, or Patagonia, Osprey, Yeti. All the big brands are at breatheoutdoors.ca. You can also check out their beautiful locations across the province of Alberta. Don't forget, if you spend more than $30 in store, drop my name, Ryan Jesperson, or the show's name, Real Talk, at the till, and they'll hook you up with a brand new ceramic mug with that beautiful Breathe Outdoors logo on it. That's free with a $30 purchase at Breathe Outdoors. Of course, we're keeping an eye on the podcast today. Since day one of the show, it's been powered by the team at Park Power, providing electricity, internet, and natural gas service. In our home province of Alberta, you can choose where you get your utilities. Why not choose Park Power? They give back 10% of their electricity profits to nonprofits in the community. Just one of the reasons why we partner with them. You can compare rates today online or switch over. It's never been easier. The promo code 2021-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill. At Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across Alberta. They want to remind you this Christmas, you can let them help you and your family celebrate from their special catered meals done by their Red Seal chefs through the way to the delicious treats. All the ingredients for that maybe perfect charcuterie board. Don't forget their fresh Alberta sourdough, meat, produce, everything you need for a tasty holiday season, plus perfect gifts for family and friends from our family to yours. A Merry Christmas from the Friesen Brothers clan, family owned and operated since 1955. I think that's the first time we've said Merry Christmas on the show. On November 23rd. There was a couple days ago, there, there was another Merry mentions. Christmas. Yeah. yeah, there you have it. Well, we're, I think we're in the clear. We're, we're in, in the, the clear. clear. We're past pumpkin spice season. Yes. So, you know, it's obviously... Are we officially past pumpkin spice? I didn't even get a pumpkin spice. Lad. I think there's a few residual yeah. pumpkin spice. You could still track one down? I think so. Are you at the PSL? Is that your thing? Are you, is no. that in your wheelhouse? No. Sam, are you a big pumpkin spice latte guy? I like I I'm a moderate pumpkin spice latte guy. I think they're delicious, and I have like two per year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that that's, seems kind of reasonable. Yeah, uh, that's like me with Ferrero Rochers. Mm. You know, love to crush a couple every year, uh, but don't like to eat like an entire. You know, people gift you like the the uh, pyramid of Ferrero Rochers available at Friesen Brothers across the province, <laughs> and they'll give you this like pyramid of Ferrero Rochers. But I just you can't do the whole thing. You can't See, you can't overdo it. I go straight to the source. Give me the pumpkin pie. That's what I want. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want the pumpkin pie? That's what pie? I want with a big dollop of whipped cream. Got to yeah. have the dollop of whipped cream. I agree. Very well said. Marie Hennon, uh, criminal defense lawyer, coming up in about 25 minutes time. Looking forward to that conversation right now as we mark one year here on the show. And I guarantee there's a few of you that have been around for every single episode. I know because you email into the show, you let us know. I want to get some of your emails in just a bit, but a special shout out to you. That's unbelievable. A lot of you are writing to us today, tweeting at us, hitting us up on Instagram. My Instagram story is just taken off right now. I appreciate all of the kind words talking to us using words like community and family 
And that really means a lot for us when it comes to the conversations that we've been driving here on the show. Let me note the conversations don't happen without your participation. So a special shout out to you. Our friends at Y Station, our official research and strategy partners, dedicated our most recent question of the week. We call it Get Real, our question of the week to our first year anniversary. And they asked you what your top moments or your top moments were over the past year. And we wanted to get into your top five. These are done by vote. This is what hundreds and hundreds of real talkers told us. The top five starts with the number five moment. And two of them, in fact, the morning after the most recent municipal election, our exclusives with Calgary's new mayor, Jody Gondek, and Edmonton's new mayor, Amarjeet Sohi. One of our most downloaded episodes on the podcast, probably due in part to this, the moment that Mayor-elect Gondek in Canada's Petro capital, the oil and gas capital that is Calgary, Alberta, letting us know her first order of business would be to declare a climate emergency. We have had the opportunity to declare a climate emergency for years. We have had various um, documents presented to us as a council, and I think we've had more than enough time to review them. So let's get serious. Let's declare this. And let's start going after some of the capital that we will see flow in once we make a bold move like that. It is a bold move. And I don't have to tell you about how even a war, a phrase like climate emergency can ripple through a downtown core. Do you have to find a balance as the mayor of a city that's that's seen itself uh, flourish? Uh, because of oil and gas revenue do you have to be careful about the words you use or are we past that do people misunderstand where calgary and business leaders are at right now i don't believe that talking about a climate emergency and oil and gas are mutually exclusive ideas i think as a matter of fact we've forgotten what we're good at we are very good at energy production and we are also leaders in innovative ways to practice energy production we became fixated on that end product being oil and gas so let's move past the outputs and start talking about the processes again and let's put ourselves on the map as a city that is the absolute leader in a transitioning economy and let's show the world that by using innovation and technology we can come up with sustainable greener cleaner solutions across all of our business sectors that's the kind a message we need to set um you know we don't need to be hung up on what it is we're producing let's talk about the ways that we get there so that's part of the top five overall moment our exclusive with mayor-elect gondek you told us when it came to edmonton's new mayor mayor-elect Sohi, the best part of the interview might have been the beginning a pretty endearing moment with his worship and his wife sarvjeet absolutely delighted and honored to uh uh, to earn this uh, this privilege, absolutely, I am uh, uh, indebted. Uh, my wife is actually she right here, right here. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna say hi to you. Of there course you we do. Good morning. Can she hear me? I don't know if she can hear me, but please extend yeah, our congratulations. There you go. Yeah, she can hear you now. There you go. We're a, we're a team here, right? So always been a team, and will always remain a team. Would this would not have been possible? Uh, with our Serbjit, absolutely. Uh, well, well, Serbjit, how how was how was the feeling in the house? Uh, not just when you went to bed last night, but when you woke up this morning. I mean, uh, you you are you're the first lady of Edmonton. I mean, this is you know, with this comes great responsibility. The smile on your face is very evident. How are you feeling today? Oh, thank you, thank you, Ryan, and thank you, Edmonton. I was 
it's, it's kind of hard. Like, I can't imagine. I can't imagine still. There you have it. Part of the top five overall moments of the year as voted by you, Real Talkers. Number four, uh, a very meaningful episode for us. This was back on September 30th of this year. Uh, Real Talkers identified the top four Real Talk moment as our special episode on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, We welcomed drummer and artist Mackenzie Brown to the show, who talked about how she connects to her ancestors and her heritage. We talked to the founder and CEO of One Feather, the tech startup, the CEO Lawrence Lewis, talking to us about digital indigenous identity, about equitable access to technology, including high-speed internet on reserves. And there was a powerful moment with physician and, and winner of Amazing Race Canada, Dr. James Makokas, who provided a compelling metaphor when it came to the behavior of the bison. When there's a threat to a buffalo herd, they do that. They put their next generation, their calves in the center so that they know if their calves are not protected, there will be no buffalo herd. And so they teach us to face that threat head on. And that's what we have to do with the COVID-19 pandemic is realizing that the threat is COVID-19. The solution is to protect our next generations and our elders, which is through the COVID-19 vaccine. And for, for our people to remember that in 1876, when our elders enshrined in treaty number six, the medicine chest clause, which again is a symbol of Western healthcare, Western medicine, Um, and those sorts of things, they knew that in the future there would be illnesses that would be coming to this land that we did not yet have medicines for. And so it's asserting our right, um, our elders' vision, our ancestors' um, vision for us that we would be protected here today. And that's what, you know, um, using the COVID-19 vaccine is is protecting our future and realizing our ancestors vision and that they thought of us more than 150 years ago 75 percent of all cases of covid amongst first nations are within the provinces of alberta and saskatchewan Mm. which just so happened to have had the most number of residential schools in this country so you can start to see the parallels as to why indigenous peoples are mistrustful from the eradication of the buffalo which is an act of genocide to the uh, implementation of residential schools, which is an act of genocide, to experimentation and forced sterilization of indigenous children and women, which is an act of genocide, to the restriction of movement, which is an act of genocide, to the scalping laws that existed in this country, which still exist in the province of Nova Scotia against Mi'kmaq people as an act of genocide. So again, on this day, September 30th, please frame your thinking around genocide and not cultural genocide. That was Dr. James Makokis on Real Talk on September 30th. If you didn't check out that episode, you can find it either by visiting uh, your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, what have you, or our YouTube channel. And a huge shout out and a thank you to everybody that subscribes and that likes and shares our content. The number three moment on the show through our first year is one that will mean the world to me forever. Julie Rohr, a dear friend, not just personally, but of this show as well. In fact, the founding member of our Real Talk editorial board. She granted us 
an interview in the context of an end stage cancer patient, you told us that the third biggest moment over the past year on this show, this show was Julie Rohr's final appearance. If you love something about someone, if you admire someone and, you know, just be honest with people and vulnerable and it's amazing what will change in your perspective and your daily life if you're walking in that gratitude and that um, community, that sense of community. An absolutely incredible human being. To honor Julie's life, we're so proud a short time ago to have established the Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship Fund. It will provide a $5,000 scholarship every year for a post-secondary student who's lost a parent to cancer. If you'd like to learn more about the Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship, you can simply Google it or find it at ecfoundation.org. The second biggest moment on the show through its first year as voted by you in our Y Station question of the week was my conversation, my exclusive the day after the federal budget with the prime minister, Justin Trudeau. It just so happened to be April 20th. For cannabis enthusiasts, it's known as 420. So I couldn't help but go there. I probably don't have to tell the prime minister that legalized cannabis that today is 420, uh, two and a half years into legalization. How would you characterize the impact that it's had on Canadian society? And, and what would you qualify as work that remains to be done on that file? I don't know what it says, Ryan, about you, but I've had a day full of briefings and press conferences and a question period, and nobody has brought that up before you did. So I, I wasn't even aware. Well, that I'm happy to help, today. Prime Minister. I think it's an example of of something where people were going, oh, my God, you can't do that. You can't do that. And then we did it. And everyone went, OK, so you did it. So we, we move on. The Prime Minister, number two. So what did Real Talkers vote as the top moment through our first year on the show well it happened on january 4th it's our most downloaded episode to date you may remember over the new year's break albertans were outraged to discover that politicians that had been telling them to stay home away from their families had been traveling to arizona and to california and to hawaii including top ministers in cabinet and the premier's chief of staff the number one moment through the first year of Real Talk, as voted by you, the audience, was my Aloha Gate rant. This is pure hypocrisy. This is absolute arrogance. This is a series of outrageous examples of do as I say, not as I do. This is mid-pandemic political entitlement. This is elitism. This is the out-of-touch leader of an out-of-touch government that has made a mockery of its promise to us. If you missed that full episode, it's the only show all year out of our first 227 that I took the first 45 minutes to get a few things off my chest. And boy, were you there with me. That episode actually earned us our first nomination, Real Talk's first nomination for an Alberta Film and Television Award as the best news and information series in the province. We're grateful for those who supported us through that nomination. Also, I think, led to the cover of Edify Magazine. Real Talk featured on their inaugural innovation issue. It meant a lot to us, and we're appreciative 
that it clearly meant a lot to you, too. Now, one of the best parts about our questions of the week that are provided by our friends at Y Station is that they go beyond the simple questions, the yes or no, the voting, the ranking and the quick clicks. We like to leave space open for you to to tell us more about how you're feeling or, or what's resonating with you. And this one, this week's edition was no different. You talked about the tribute to Julie Rohr and how she's so missed. One of you said to us, the episode that touched me to the core was uh, the one focusing on the opioid crisis. It was an episode back in December of 2020. Says this audience member, that was the interview that really affirmed to me that real talk was different at the quantum level than regular talk radio. Another one of you says when those three fire chiefs were together talking about the human impact of centralizing 911 dispatch. Audience member says, I've never in my life seen that kind of raw emotion from small town Alberta men. I bawled my eyes out. Another one of you said it was your interview, Ryan, with a very candid Sheldon Kennedy around the Chicago Blackhawks scandal facing the National Hockey League. Audience member said the show you started late after you took the first half hour off to walk your son to school on his first day of grade one says, I remember you talking about Wyatt and the sincerity of, of your emotion and your openness and sharing. It, and that's what made me hit the subscribe button goes on to say there have been many moments since where honest, natural emotion has been the defining part of the show. Keep being brave. That's a meaningful comment. Other honorable mentions for the interviews of the year. High River Mayor Craig Snodgrass, who's going to be joining us tomorrow, returning with country music star Corb Lund to bring us up to date on the keen eye they're keeping on coal exploration on Alberta's eastern slopes. You also told us you loved my conversation with news anchor former current podcast host Peter Mansbridge. Our inaugural episode, the exclusive with former Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson, who used our platform to announce he wouldn't be seeking reelection. Our exclusive one on one with my former radio colleague, Danielle Smith, was a top 10 moment for you. Remains one of our top 10 most downloaded episodes as well. My conversations with psychologist Dr. Jody Carrington have really resonated with you with Chief Billy Morin from Enoch First Nation with Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu. You want to talk rants. Dr. Ogbogu's is one of the all time greats through our first 12 months. You also loved me learning to dance Bangra with Gurdip Pander, who checked in live from Yukon. How amazing was that? And many of you told us you've thoroughly enjoyed the two appearances by the strategists, podcasters Zane Felgi, Stephen Carter, and Corey Hogan. We asked you, what would you like to hear more about on Real Talk in the coming year? And, and we're taking notes. These are the ones that these are the lists that we print off and keep in front of us. This is how you can participate in driving our editorial process. You told us you want more stories from indigenous perspectives, the good that First Nations people are doing in and for communities, how to break the myths around things like indigenous people don't pay taxes. Another one, you said, I love how you you interview people or groups that we never knew we needed to hear from. 
says, I trust you'll keep finding those people, people that offer new perspectives. You know, how about a, a person experiencing houselessness? How do they navigate the system? Give us snapshots of walks of lives and experiences. Another one of you said, I, I don't like content or I do like content rather that isn't necessarily in the headlines. I appreciate Real Talk's balance of headline news and more special interest news. Another one of you wanted and wants to hear more about water, the impact of industry, overuse by consumers, and, and why the hell you say the province and country, why is anybody still drinking unsafe or untreated water? Another one of you wants to hear more about pandemic recovery. Another wants an exploration on whether or not it's unethical to be a billionaire. One of you challenged us to provide more broad points of view, even if it irritates the audience. They say break an echo chamber. It's why I tune in. Another one of you says, if you keep up being responsive to real talkers, the show will continue to travel in the right direction. We asked who you'd love to see on the show. Rick Mercer was one of your top votes. And we're really excited to let you know that we're going to be talking to Rick about his new book, Talking to Canadians in Short Order. As a matter of fact, you might as well mark your calendars for November 29th. For a week from yesterday, for next Monday, Rick Mercer will join me live here on Real Talk. You want to hear from Dr. Sanjay Gupta. You want, quote, when the time is right to hear a conversation with Alberta's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. You'd like to hear from Connor McDavid. You'd like to hear more from my wife, Carrie Skelton. You can check out what she does at kerryskelton.com. You want to see Greta. Greta Thunberg on the show and Jason Kenny and W. Brett Wilson and former commander of the International Space Station, Chris Hadfield. Sarah, I can confirm we have asks in with literally every single name I just read. I just was flagging it. You're showing up. I'll show everybody the sign. You're <laughs> asked, asked, I mean, asked. And I will continue to ask. I will. I am that little. It's the way we roll. Mosquito that is keeps buzzing. You know, what's fascinating is and I, how would the average person know? But the mm. amount of work that goes in behind the scenes for a show like this to happen, the amount of work that goes in to have Marie Hennon and Malcolm Gladwell on the same show and be able to promote Rick Mercer coming up in six days after looking back on Mark Messier and some of the other huge interviews that we've had in the last little while. I do have to issue one apology and admit that there's no chance that this next vote getter will ever join us on the show. And that is simply because Darth Vader's people refuse to get back to us. So he'll not be joining us. We asked what makes the show unique. What keeps you engaged? You told us uh, the conversations are real. People are inconsistent. Perspectives are varied. Problems are nuanced. And the show helps bring light to that. Another one of you says that you like that you're going to always experience a few different things. You'll laugh. You'll learn something new. You'll learn about a topic maybe you thought you knew a lot about. You'll be challenged on some of your views in a respectful way. And in some circumstances, you'll be vindicated in some of your views as well. The team at Y Station asked you a very plain question, a straight and direct question. Maybe I was a little nervous about where this one would go. We asked you if we're living up to the idea of the show's name of real talk of the hundreds of respondents 91 percent of you surveyed said that we are living up to the idea of real talk to the eight percent who feel the nine percent who feel we can be doing better we're reading your feedback 
carefully, people will say, well, it's a friendly audience, the people that respond to your question of the week, perhaps, but will continue to allow the title, the name, the headline that's splayed across the thumbnail of our podcast to drive us. That is real talk. Now, you also provided us with some feedback. We asked you not to hold back, to, to, to pull out the blowtorch, to talk a little trash as part of that question of the week. And I'm happy to let you know that this Friday's edition of Trash Talk will be our take on the trend of mean tweets, so to speak. I'm basically going to let you open fire and enjoy the entire process. I suspect it may feel a little cathartic as well. Looking forward to that. Marie Hennen, in just a moment, you know, the partners that have been with us through our first 12 months deserve such a recognition today. They've allowed us to build what we continue to build. It's why we're on the air. Partners like the team at Eden Landscaping. Every day, I invite you to check them out online at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can check out more about their services, including excavation. It's not too late in the season to get it done whether you're digging a trench maybe you're you're hoping to run some natural gas out to the garage maybe put in a nice natural gas heater driven by a thermostat nothing like that the team at eden landscaping can make those projects happen and they've got the track record that allows you to trust them they don't leave the project until you're satisfied mike and his team will be happy to provide you a quick quote or maybe just establish contact if you visit them today at landscapeedmonton.ca the family-owned team at grand dog essentials quality raw food wants to remind you that in addition to the quality raw food or maybe even the kibble that you're feeding your dog supplements can go a long way if you check them out online right now under the shop now link at granddog.ca you can learn more about what dog owners are putting into the dish to ensure their dogs experience optimum health like some of the supplements around coat health or joint health all of the things maybe that older dogs like our boxer moses experience we're trusting grand dog with our supplements and moses in the last five years he's nine now in the last five years has never moved better the promo code real talk at granddog.ca gets you 10 percent off your first time order hand delivered to your door if you're in calgary edmonton or central alberta and also a big shout out to our amazing friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They want me to remind you that the burger of the month this month is the flamethrower burger with that classic flamethrower sauce. One of the real talkers that chimed in on this told us that there's nothing better than the chicken tenders at DQ dipped in the flamethrower sauce. Said it's so good their five-year-old just crushes it. If that's your order at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road, you let them know that Real Talk sent you. Drop my name. Show them a little love. We're sure glad to have the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park on board through our first year of Real Talk and beyond. Our next guest is easily the most prominent and in-demand criminal defense lawyer in Canada. She's a senior partner at Hennen Hutchison, one of the country's top 10 litigation boutiques. She's written for the Globe and Mail, certainly a sought after speaker to say the least. She's a recipient of the Laura Legge Award from the Law Society of Upper Canada and the Law Society of Upper Canada Medal. And she is the author of a brand new memoir, 
nothing but the truth. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program, Marie Hennen. Thanks for making time for us today and welcome to Real Talk. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on your first anniversary. I'm excited. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a big show for us because we didn't really know if this thing was going to fly. I remember a year ago today, we're sitting here and and on the technical side, I'm going, I hope that the cameras hold up. I hope that our live streaming holds up. I hope our, <laughs> our computers don't crash. So today feels like kind of a moment, you know, to have two prominent Canadians, Malcolm Gladwell and yourself joining us. It's big for us. Uh, with regards to your professional career, before you were Marie Hennen, mm. what was that moment where you knew that this was going to be a noteworthy and special career? You know, I, I don't think I ever thought of it that way. Uh, you know, I remember when I worked for Eddie Greenspan and he was uh, such an icon in this country. And I remember talking to him and thinking, you know, there would never be uh, another experience like that for uh, Canadians and for a criminal lawyer. So I was focused on just trying to be really good at what I do, trying to improve my personal skill. You know, the rest of it, whatever happened in my career has been, quite frankly, uh, a surprise. And much of it often is beyond your control. You just don't know how you'll be received by the public and uh, what, if anything, they find interesting about you. So it's been a journey and a surprise for me too. Hmm. I have so many questions for you and I'm really looking forward to this conversation as, as a jumping off point. Uh, we've been promoting your appearance here on the show, and this is nothing new to you. First of all, as a criminal defense attorney, second, as an attorney that's had some pretty high profile clients, including former radio host Jean Gomeshi, I'm sure you've experienced your fair share of pushback. And I know that people have called into question your credentials as a feminist in us promoting this interview. Here were just a couple of the responses that we got. This was just from yesterday. Uh, uh, an audience member out of Calgary, Giant Blue Ring, as the Twitter account says, she was Gomeshi's lawyer, wasn't she? Luna responds and says, yes, she's a true traitor. And then how about this comment from an audience member who said, Jespo's going to get the cancel culture treatment for having Ms. Hennen on. It'll be fun to watch. What do comments like that do to you when you hear that, when you read that? Is, is there a visceral response or is it water off a duck's back? Uh, water off a duck's back in terms of my personal uh, reaction, because those people uh, don't know me. Uh, but I, I think what it does bring home is a misunderstanding of the role of a defense lawyer. So I understand the visceral reaction because it reflects a, a lack of understanding of how our justice system works and what my role is. And it is easy to uh, confuse or misunderstand the role of a defense lawyer standing beside their client in a courtroom and where they fit in the architecture of uh, the, the justice system. You know, the reality is members of the public often get their information about what we do in a courtroom and how a courtroom plays out from TV. And nothing uh, could be further from the reality of what it is. So I get it. Uh, you know, I'd love to talk to those people and explain what I do. I always say, come and watch a courtroom. Uh, often it, it looks and feels very different than what you see on TV. Was it? Uh, I mean, I, I don't assume anything about you. And so I want I, I want to feel OK in asking you if, if something was hurtful, although people may suspect that there's nothing that could possibly penetrate the armor of Marie Hennen, this this feared criminal defense attorney. But was it hurtful for you or, or, or was there one or two comments in particular when when people suggested as a woman you should not be defending Mr. Gomeshi? 
I, you know, I think you have to have perspective and I, I'm not saying there aren't moments. I'm sure my family can tell you all about the moments since they're the recipients of my frustration uh, at that time. But I, I, I do try to check myself because people are commenting. They don't know you personally. You always have to remember that. Uh, they don't know what you do exactly. And there are people who I don't know. Uh, if it was my mom tweeting, I'd be concerned. If it was my friends or my colleagues uh, tweeting and, and saying I've done something, uh, I would certainly take a close look at it. But in terms of what other people say, you know, that's the, the uh, nature of the beast of being a public person. It's the nature of social media. It's uncurated. It's unfiltered. It's often uninformed. Uh, and I keep that in mind when I uh, when I see those things made national headlines just over the past week when uh, a student book club I tied to the Toronto Public School District uh, suggested that that young students, uh, female students in particular, wouldn't attend an event uh, noting your new book, Nothing But the Truth, because you defended Jean Gomeshi on those sexual assault charges back in 2016, uh, quoted one School board spokesperson, how do you explain that to little girls? I suspect you'd love to have an audience of young female students. What would you say to them in the context of this book? It's a great question, Ryan. Well, first of all, that sort of attitude and commentary I do take personally because that is coming from people who are educators and who should probably read the book before they decide to start burning it. Um, I did have a great conversation uh, with students, not from the TDSB, but students from other school boards who did allow uh, the, the young women to attend. And what I would tell you is they were phenomenal. The questions were so fascinating, so thoughtful, insightful. They ranged from personal questions to questions about the justice system, to how the justice system interfaces with racialized members of the community. They were just such smart questions. It didn't surprise me. Uh, it shouldn't surprise the TDSB or anybody else. Uh, young women are very smart. Uh, nobody was alarmed or shocked. Uh, they were asking questions that were important ones about how the justice system works, what it feels like to be a criminal lawyer, what the career path is uh, to law. So they were all great questions. Uh, and it was very easy uh, to have that conversation and uh, probably one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. Interesting uh, feature, an op-ed in the National Post uh, by attorney Catherine Marshall, who happens to be representing a former staffer of the Alberta provincial government who's just launched a lawsuit taking aim at the premier's office. It's a fascinating development, most especially considering uh, Ms. Marshall's conservative roots. A lot of people are reading into that. I won't ask you to speak to that. That's a question for her. But she writes about an event that she attended as a young lawyer about five years ago where you were speaking to young women in the legal profession. She said, here I am trying to find my way in the legal profession. And Ms. Ms. Hennon's telling us, don't forget why we went to law school. Don't be afraid to take our rightful place in this profession. It was an empowering message. How important is that message for women and non-binary people in the legal profession to hear? You know, it's an important message uh, for women and non-binary people to hear in any in any field. You know, it is very, very challenging. And if I can uh, contribute a little bit to feeling a sense of self-confidence, uh, that is so meaningful uh, to me personally. Uh, visibility is very much 
an essential component to feeling that you can access uh, certain areas and certain professions and, and uh, uh, life and a commitment to your job, you have to see people doing it. You have to know that it is possible. And you, you know, what I always say is you do it on your own terms, you do it, uh, you know, according to your own stripes and what makes you feel comfortable. But it is meaningful to me and it is important uh, for, for uh, people to see you in, a, in the profession in a visible way. Uh, so it becomes normal that uh, a female does a variety of jobs, whether it's leading this country or being a defense lawyer or uh, being a writer, all of it. It is important to know that we are here and it normalizes it. Uh, and that's what I hope. It doesn't become anomalous. You've said that you want your memoir, Nothing But the Truth, to challenge the two-dimensional character of criminal defense lawyers. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a two-dimensional caricature, not only of defense lawyers, particularly of female defense lawyers. Uh, you know, you reference the armor that I have. I, I don't have it. And I wanted to explain a little bit to members of the public, you know, what they were seeing and, and who I was. I didn't want young women to be looking at this or, or young male lawyers and think this is the type of person you have to be, this two-dimensional character to be successful in the profession. And so I wanted to round it out, to be uh, a little bit uh, more fulsome about who I am, where I come from, to, to try to explain what you're seeing a little bit, and hopefully to uh, explain why I'm in this profession, why it's so meaningful to me. You, uh, through the course of your career, have, of course, defended many prominent individuals, including Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, well, I want to ask you about the Vice Admiral uh, in a few minutes. Back in 2008, you defended hockey agent David Frost. who was acquitted of the charges of sexual exploitation. Uh, you represented uh, Marvin Cezanne, the Toronto doctor accused of tying up young boys and repeatedly forcing, forcing sex on them. Uh, in 2009, also, you represented Bradley Harrison at the Supreme Court of Canada. Charges of possession of 35 kilos of cocaine worth about $4 million at the time were dropped. How do you determine who you will or will not represent? And have you ever said no to a high profile client based on optics or another factor? I've said no to many high profile clients. Uh, and, uh, you know, every lawyer determines the cases they want to do and are prepared to do uh, differently. And it, it is entirely a personal choice. You know, I subscribe to the, the school of thought that is very much uh, a school of thought that as a defense lawyer, you do have an obligation not to judge your clients. You do have an obligation to represent uh, everybody. Uh, for me, the, uh, the line that I draw is where a client wants you to simply be a mouthpiece, where they don't understand what your professional obligation is, and they think you're simply a hired gun. I will not act for people like that. I will not take those cases on. Uh, you know, I, I'm a professional, and if you're coming to me, you're coming to me for my professional advice to you, whether you like what I tell you or not, that's what I'm here to do. And uh, so if a client doesn't understand what the roles are and what your obligation is and simply wants a cheerleader, I'm probably not the lawyer for you. Nicola is watching us live this morning on YouTube and she chimes in and says, I think we need to. I know this isn't the first time you've heard this, Marie. We need to normalize uh, saying legal system instead of justice system just for the sake of accuracy. Do you agree with Nicola or do you believe that justice occurs in Canadian courts? No, I, I disagree. Justice does occur. But I think we have to think about what our idea is of justice. You know, the justice system is is pretty complicated in uh, in America, where we're trying to deal with competing values. 
you know, one value obviously is that you want to get at the truth. There's no question that that is part of the design of the system. But we've got so many rules that obstruct getting at the truth. We exclude evidence, for example, that's been obtained uh, illegally. We exclude confessions that would be obtained by some sort of abuse. And those sorts of rules are designed to make sure that the system is fair. And so what you have is a more complicated notice uh, notion of justice, which needs to uh, always calibrate the truth-seeking function with the fairness functions to, to a number of participants. And that often is very difficult uh, to do. But our concept of justice isn't just uh, getting at what happened. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. We wouldn't have the presumption of innocence or uh, the burden of proof resting with the prosecution if we didn't inject very fundamental notions of what we think a fair legal system has to look like. So yes, I do think we have a just system. That does not mean that we don't improve it. It does not mean we don't critique it. And it also does not mean that it isn't constantly changing and reassessing itself. It is, you know, the, the laws that existed when I entered into law school over 30 years ago are very different now. The law is constantly changing. And honestly, Ryan, that's one of the reasons I was so attracted to law, that it was not static at all, that it was reactive to our attitudes and um, how we improved our understanding of certain things. It is capable of change. And I love that. I love that it's not a static profession or a static way of thinking. There's been a lot of conversation about how the justice system needs to change in the context of reconciliation. Is this something that you've spent time thinking about? Yeah, I don't think you can be involved in criminal justice and not be aware of it. You know, reconciliation with Indigenous members of, of our community is fundamental and it is uh, really absent in the criminal justice system. We have such a chronic over-incarceration of Indigenous community members everywhere. It is uh, quite stunning and report after government report has identified this fundamental problem. It is a community that is over-policed, overcharged, and over-incarcerated. Uh, that uh, there can be no reconciliation until we address that fundamental problem, at least uh, as it relates to the justice system. Uh, we've got a long way to go there. Uh, you, uh, I'm not sure a lot of people know this, but you're actually born in, in Cairo, in Egypt, right? Uh, a first-generation Canadian. Uh, how did your early years as an immigrant to Canada influence who you are today, including in your professional endeavors? Well, I, you know, I think, first of all, we didn't know what on earth we were doing. It was profoundly confusing. I mean, there's such a cultural dissonance, and I know many immigrants feel this. There's so many things that you just didn't understand. I mean, I came from a country where my parents had never seen snow. I remember that they would take pictures of my dad standing beside his Pontiac Parisienne in Brantford uh, to send them back home to show people that there was real snow. Um, you know, it, it always affected me because you're always an outsider. There's no question about that. You feel uh, some uh, disconnection and it takes a while to feel grounded and um, have roots. You know, part of that is you spend time. Part of it is that you have children who are uh, raised, uh, born and raised here. And, and part of it, I have to say, has been this profession. And, uh, you know, as much as people say nasty things uh, on Twitter, I have been embraced in such an incredible way. And, you know, when I get letters saying you're, you're a good Canadian and that you represent the justice system so well, I can't express to you how meaningful it is to my family and to me personally, uh, to, to feel uh, at home. 
so that is always a journey for many immigrants. And, uh, you know, I feel I'm there. It's it's been interesting to keep a keen eye, and I don't expect you to have specific background on Alberta's budgetary spending and the impact on post secondary institutions and the like. But post secondary institutions like the University of Alberta are seeing major cuts to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And in particular, we've been hearing from law students who have told us that their costs, by way of tuition and otherwise, are virtually doubling. In some circumstances, it means that law school will be unattainable for people who could make great contributions uh, to certainly the profession and the administration of justice across the country. How much of a concern, if at all, is it to you about lack of access to people that have been marginalized, that are on the outside looking into the profession? That is such a a great question, something very close to my heart. I, I think that representation and diversity and access to education Uh, by these marginalized communities should be a main focus. It is how we change the complexion of not only society, but our justice system by having people with different experiences and backgrounds. Uh, But the other thing also is education is one of the greatest equalizers and uh, it has to be accessible. It, It should not be exclusive. And it is profoundly disappointing that we are excluding people who could become significant leaders in this country and and impact our daily lives from law school because we are raising tuition and excluding uh, significant swaths of our community. It it is really, really um, something that we should be rethinking because at the end of the day, we as a community pay the price. We lose uh, this brain trust uh, that is here for us to mine and we are just turning our back on it. Marie Hennon, our guest, back in one minute. Uh, right now, I want to take an opportunity to remind you that the Fuji Film Black Friday sales are on now at McBain. You can check out all the details at McBainCamera.com. And right now, save $500 on the Fuji Film X-T3 camera body. This high-performance premium camera will become an inseparable partner in your artistic journey. It features this evolved processing engine that substantially improves the camera's ability to track moving subjects. It boosts autofocus speed and accuracy, and it's only $13.99.99 for Black Friday. You can visit McBainCamera.com today to see a full list of Fujifilm Black Friday deals. McBain, create to inspire. We're also so proud today to launch a new partnership with Poppy Barley, I encourage you to check them out online today at poppybarley.com. Easily my favorite footwear on planet Earth. They've got their women's new arrivals, their men's boots and shoes, and their luxurious leather accessories ready for purchase right now. Even custom orders. I've done it before. It's the best money you'll ever spend. You can find them online today at poppybarley.com with a guaranteed ship by Christmas promise if you're looking for that perfect gift for someone that can appreciate the feel and quality that comes with the luxury brand i personally recommend poppy barley at poppybarley.com marie if you don't mind in a way it kind of gives me a perfect segue to start chatting with you again Uh, a lot of people will talk about the image that you portray People will describe you based on the colors, the fierceness of your look. People will write entire paragraphs and columns about your shoes. How important is an image 
curated to professional success? Uh, not at all. Really? Uh, what you're seeing and, and what you see in the book, I hope, is an explanation that I have been a longtime victim of fashion, uh, as has my mother, as has my grandmother, as was my uncle Sammy. Uh, it is bread in the bone, the glitter. Uh, we love it. And I'd be dressing up whether I was working in a bank or in a grocery store or, you know, uh, doing whatever. I mean, we just it's part of who we are. Nothing is uh, curated. It is it is what I am. Uh, but it is an interesting thing. You say that there are paragraphs written about it. I think if you take a look at a lot of women in the public eye, uh, often their appearance is commented on uh, extensively. Uh, by male and female writers, you know, think of Hillary Clinton, think of any uh, female in the public eye, the description of what they're wearing, what their hair looks like, what their clothes are, and what that says about them uh, is very much a topic of conversation. And that is unfortunately a uniquely gendered approach to describing women in the public eye. Uh, men rarely are subjected to an analysis of uh, what suit they're wearing. Now, maybe that's because their suits are boring. I don't know. But um, I, I can tell you, uh, it is uh, just the way I like to dress. And who knows what I'll wear tomorrow. It's anyone's guess. Well, you're 100% right. We had a, a really great conversation just yesterday uh, about imposter syndrome uh, with two contributors to the Harvard Business Review. Uh, Ruchika Tulyashan and Jody Ann Beery joined us and, and talked about that, about how, you know, you, you can have, uh, you know, French President Emmanuel Macron with his sort of tailored suits. And then you can have Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, with the classic hoodies and jeans look. But you don't see that same wide range of acceptability extended to women. And it was a really interesting conversation that I think flies under the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, Ryan. I, I think women are constantly judged on, on their appearance. And, you know, when you're trying to sort of figure out what your zone is, when everyone's telling you what you should look like, it's really hard to begin to feel comfortable in your own skin. Women don't get the permission uh, of that range. I'll never forget, for example, after Hillary Clinton's run, forget what, what it was like in the commentary when she was running. But after she lost the commentary that she was appearing uh, without uh, makeup and her hair was uh, not nicely coiffed. And that was indicative of her emotional state. I mean, uh, this sort of analysis is something women are routinely uh, subjected to. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, it, it's, as I said, it's very gendered and it really limits. You know what I say? I say that I could do the same job if I was in track pants and Birkenstocks or in four inch heels. People shouldn't make that mistake and confuse what I'm wearing with what my ability is. Jillian is watching. Um, she says men never wear anything interesting. She says <laughs> she says if more men dressed like Dan Levy in Shit's Creek, folks would talk about their style more, which is probably true. Uh, I, I'd be curious to see how that might resonate. Do you have a favorite Canadian television production or is there Canadian media right now that, that's catching your attention? Anything you particularly love? Well, I actually have to say, I, I, like the rest of the world, was utterly obsessed with Schitt's Creek, and I was a late adopter, but I just thought it was so beautifully written. It was incredibly funny, but, uh, you know, I think Dan in particular brought um, a humanity uh, to to his character that was necessary uh, in, in media, and it was uh, very well loved and very well done. Uh, it, it was just a, a really, really great show, and I, I thought... Uh, not surprising. We have so many incredible artists and comedians in particular coming out of Canada 
But that was the one that I've been a, a little obsessed with. It was a, a, a bomb to the pandemic, I have to say. After your effective, uh, some might say stunning defense of Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who was, of course, accused of leaking confidential material related to a shipbuilding contract, uh, columnist Richard Warnica wrote in the Post, Hennon put on a piece of political theater that was as understated as it was devastating. She flayed the prime minister uh, without even mentioning his name. You didn't, for what it's worth, mention SNC-Lavalin either, but it was very clear. You you went on to recognize, uh, by way of introducing to the court, quote, the all-female team that represented Vice Admiral Norman. Fortunately, you said, the Vice Admiral didn't fire the females he hired. Do you still feel as strongly as you evidently or clearly did that day about Prime Minister Trudeau? I, I do. Uh, you know, I, well, at that time in particular, you were seeing women in positions of authority and significant positions leaving. Uh, that's very, very concerning to me. Uh, and it's hard to miss. Uh, it's uh, hard to explain. Uh, in my view, and uh, there were three women leaving, uh, including Ms. Philpott, at, at around the same time. So that is understandably and should be uh, concerning and distressing when uh, we are um, uh, promised uh, a different attitude and, and gender parity. You know, you, you, can, uh, you can populate uh, any organization, including a cabinet with, with men and women, but part of the essential role is to promote and to elevate and to give some runway. And when you take that runway away and when you silence uh, these women, it's it's concerning. So, yeah, it's something I'm still annoyed with. Uh, I'm guilty of reading uh, a couple of critical tweets leading up to your appearance here on the show. But there was a ton of excitement about your appearance as well, including from members of the legal profession uh in particular younger female lawyers uh that were really excited to hear what you'd have to say i'm curious to know who gets you excited who inspires you well you know it's interesting the 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 people that inspire me uh and this is not uh this is not a, a pat answer it is true are often people that you meet or i read about that are uh, regular people rising above uh, and uh, doing extraordinary things, whether it's just supporting their family or rising above challenges. You know, whenever I feel I read a mean tweet and I get all sucky about it, I think, uh, get over yourself, because there are people that are just so extraordinary that are doing so many things and overcoming so many challenges that I never in my entire life have to face. Um, so it's those stories and those uh, regular people that really, really uh, inspire me, the people that are out there working hard, trying to make a living, trying to uh, to, to make uh, make it for their families that are overcoming health challenges, financial challenges. Uh, all those things are, are the things that not only inspire me, but I, I think cause me to check myself. I've said it before uh, to get out of my head and to not only acknowledge how lucky I am, but to really seek inspiration and, and um, strength uh, from those sorts of stories. You know, my mom certainly obviously inspired me. Many of the women in my life, all very much warrior women, inspire me daily. It's just um, that, that strength and resilience is, is always, those are the stories that I find 
really powerful for me and really helpful for me on a personal level to uh, to sometimes just suck it up and focus. I'm not sure if you know the background of this show, but we we launched the show about seven weeks after I was uh, publicly fired from a pretty prominent radio gig. And in in the immediate aftermath of that firing, I'm not going to lie, it's devastating. And you you see pieces of your career laying about like shrapnel. I mean, you feel like a nuclear bomb has gone off. I'm curious to know for you, what was the biggest moment that you bounced back from? What, what was the biggest challenge you overcame? Or what was that devastating moment in your career that you said, I'm not going to let this one be the story? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, dealing with the, the Gomeshi trial, uh, the, the aftermath of it, uh, it was certainly a weight that people were watching the justice system and that your contribution or what you did in it was uh, going to define for many people how the justice system works. And then afterwards, I, I have to tell you, seeing uh, some of the reaction uh, was personally distressing to me because uh, I was concerned that perhaps people didn't quite understand what the justice system was and that if you lose respect for one of the most significant components of our democratic uh, country, it, it is an absolute foundational piece, that that is a very significant moment uh, for us. I think that probably for me in terms of the the uh, of my career would be one of the most significant moments. Uh, I think uh, feeling the focus and the weight of the government and the and the uh, power of the state was undeniable in Vice Admiral Norman's case. I think that would be a second moment that was extremely uh, weighty for me on a personal level to uh, to actually see it very much, very much in living color and in action. You know, the case was uh, tried in Ottawa as well, and you couldn't miss it. And uh, that was uh, very weighty uh, in my career. I, I think uh, I, I felt that very, very significantly. I think those were significant moments for me um, in the life of my career. But, you know, it's always vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the justice system and, and what people's perceptions are of it, because it's what I've spent my life doing. And I, I truly have respect for, for the system. Not that I don't criticize it. I'm in court challenging, you know, Crown attorneys and police officers and cases and courts all the time. But the way it fundamentally works um, is correct. Marie Hennon is a senior partner at Hennon Hutchison LLP, one of the country's top 10 litigation boutiques. You can check out her new book, Nothing But the Truth, a national bestseller already after being released in September. You can pick it up now wherever you find great books just in time for Christmas. Marie, I've been wanting to interview you for a long time, and I appreciate you making yourself available on this very special episode for us. Thank you for including me, Ryan. It's fun. Appreciate that. You can learn more about uh, what Ms. Hennon and her team does at WHLLP.ca. Again, her new book, Nothing But the Truth. A big shout out to the team at the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. They are back in action, thrilled to be back at the Windspear Center playing great music. They're adjusting to the new reality, so to speak, and they've got great details.
distanced seating options. You can find your tickets online at windspearcenter.com. How long has it been since you treated yourself to a night at the symphony? The sweet sound of the season is around the corner, and you can learn more about tickets to, for example, the Four Seasons and the Magic Flute. That goes November 26th and 27th, just a few days from now. A reminder, the promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off all symphony concerts at windspearcenter.com. However, that promo code wraps up at the very end of the month. You've got to buy your tickets before the end of November using the promo code REALTALK at windspearcenter.com. We're also very proud to present the November Wine of the Month for Real Talk. We're partnering with Brewer Clifton. That team is steered by the 2020 Winemaker of the Year. A celebrated figure in the world of wine in particular, the Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs coming out of the great state of California. Greg Brewer, per wine enthusiast, the winemaker of the year last year, due in large part, I know, to the Brewer Clifton Santa Rita Hills Chardonnay, which I've tried. It's fabulous, and I'm not always a Chardonnay guy. And the Brewer Clifton Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir, which comes with my personal stamp of approval. You can find the ex post facto Syrah exclusively at Wine and Beyond, and you can ask for Brewer Clifton anywhere you buy fine wines. Through our first year, a huge part of driving public discourse has been your contributions by way of emails, by way of tweets, by way of comments in our live chat. A reminder that at the end of today, literally at midnight, we're going to scroll back through our hashtag RealTalkRJ and we're going to survey the highlights that you've noted from today's show. A quote that maybe Mr. Gladwell or Ms. Hennon said that really jumped out at you. Maybe it was something I said or something that was quoted in our question of the week the top five moments of this show over the past 12 months. Thanks to the amazing generosity of an audience member who demands they remain anonymous, we're going to be awarding $500 as a thank you to one person who's used the hashtag RealTalkRJ to share a highlight from today's show. Tanya took the time to send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. She says, happy anniversary to the team says, I started the email a few times in my head, but I couldn't quite decide on a rant or a rave. So it may come across as a bit of both. Tanya says, truly, the sentiment boils down to a big thank you. A year ago, we were eight months into this pandemic, and in many ways, it felt like life was falling apart at the seams. For me, she says, and I bet for a lot of other people, too, work was frenetic and stressful. She says, I work in healthcare. And with the second wave of COVID rapidly cresting and threatening to fill field hospitals with the sick and dying, our government was too slow to act despite the screaming of countless experts. Things I had filled my cup with, you know, my kids' activities, my own wellness, my social life, my faith community, watching the nightly news to stay on top of things, it all felt like it was slipping away. Canceled, too risky to venture out, too stressful to watch. I was withdrawing. I was becoming angrier as I became more isolated. I felt like I was surrounded by knuckle-dragging, mouth-breathing fuckwits who were going to drag this province to oblivion behind a blue pickup truck. Then came real talk. 
Ryan and Sam and then Sarah introduced me to an entire community of people who were thoughtful and unafraid of hard truths. They got it. We deserved so much more than shitty talking points and issues managers gaslighting us with every tweet. Ian Hanna-Mansing could never yell out his feelings on the national about stupid government policy or how people were poisoning our rivers or how policy was getting people killed. But Ryan sure could on Real Talk. And then he would yell our feelings into the universe on Trash Talk on Fridays. It's cathartic and unifying and exactly what I needed. And I know I'm not alone there. Now, is the show perfect? No. Sometimes I roll my eyes when Ryan gets up onto the soapbox for the 10th time on the same issue. Or sometimes I turn off the chatterbox, the live chat when it gets so woke. I'm at risk of permanent insomnia. But these are minor gripes. We can all take ourselves too seriously sometimes, so being present while others do the same is a humbling privilege, and it's necessary. Anyway, says Tanya, here we are a year later, and we've still got that provincial government that drags its ass before doing the right thing, and we still have monumental problems like post-pandemic recovery and climate change adaptation and the energy transition in front of us, but there is light, and there's hope. And we're dipping our toes into post-pandemic life and we're finding a voice and a community that sees a future for this province that doesn't involve oil and gas victimhood and frat boy grievance politics. We're talking about real issues with real people proposing real solutions. And that includes me. The we includes me. This show and community have helped me find my way back. She says a sincere thank you, a happy anniversary, and a genuine wish for many more years. Not from Tanya. That meant and means the world to us. Robert reached out and, and said, if I were to describe Real Talk in two words, it would be courageous and authentic. When Real Talk started, a lot of me was curious what an unfiltered Ryan might be like. And I had mad respect for then Mayor Don Iveson, the first guest. So I thought I'd give the show a shot. I wasn't a listener at Ryan's old radio gig, so this whole thing and the host was new to me. What I didn't expect was the openness and honesty, both good and bad, in agreement and disagreement. At first, I thought, yeah, this transparency probably won't last, but it was so refreshing that I hoped it would. Part of the joy, of course, is that I've had the privilege of being a part-time participant in the show. I've had a trash talk read. I've shared with you a mountain trip to Jasper. A story of mine was featured in Positive Reflections. Heck, even my late dog was talked about on the show. The truth is, by November 23rd, after so much of the pandemic, not seeing many family and friends for months outside my wife and kids, things got a bit lonely. And when the show started and working from home most days, it felt like I was hanging out with Ryan and Sam and then Sarah every morning. There was the live chat, a genius move, says Robert, that allowed like-minded people to meet up and chat. I didn't realize how much I missed the banter in my day to day. And and it's helped me get through the, the tough slog of the pandemic. Now I'm back at the office full time and I catch the show, just not live. There are some genuinely amazing people in that chat. And I appreciate you trying to include other perspectives in your conversations. Says Robert, the thing I experienced most about the show is the transformative conversations that happen, not in like a, a foo foo kind of theoretical way, but in real life. There have been many guests and conversations that have transformed my perspective, and I didn't see them coming. In a lot of cases, they weren't big names, but regular people who know their stuff. 
Robert says, you guys even got me to break my rule. Typically, I won't contribute cash for content that has ads, but I signed up as a monthly Patreon supporter. Why? Because I believe our actions speak louder than our words. Robert says, happy anniversary. Keep up the amazing work. Peace and love. Peace and love right back at you. And thanks to everybody who supports us via Patreon. It's not lost on us how amazing that is. You get our top line reports from Y Station and, and, and coming up this next Monday morning, you're going to get an exclusive promo code. You're going to get a promo code by way of your email inbox. Our Patreon supporters will that'll give you pre-order options on the new Real Talk Bourbon that we're launching with actor William H. Macy and his team at Woody Creek Distillers. It's the Real Talk Cask Number 1, and it will be available to the public if it doesn't sell out to our Patreon crew. It's our way of saying thank you for helping us build what we continue to build as we get ready to move into a new studio, as we get ready to add to this team as our parent company, Relay, gets set to launch new shows with new hosts in new markets, you are the builders that have been here since day one. I remember the rehearsals, Sam, on Sunday, November 22nd of 2020, when we were in here wondering, as I said, if this pretty bird would fly. How different is the headspace when you woke up this morning to the headspace a year ago today. I, I don't I, I don't know which one of us was more terrified of this whole thing collapsing as probably soon as both. we hit live. Yeah, probably both. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I saw somebody on the live chat when we were watching the old video saying, is that VHS? And we was like, yeah, we've actually like really upped the production quality of this since then. But it's, you know, it, it's, it was thrilling when you asked me to be part of this because I got to build something from the ground up. I, you know, came in with a little bit of technical prowess. I'd never been in broadcasting before. I'd been in print media and kind of knew my way around live streaming. And I said, yeah, let's take a risk on this thing. Let's, let's do something that, that nobody else is building. Um, I think that, you know, similar to, to Robert's emails, the, the thing that probably surprised me the most was the sense of community you get with, you know, people in the live chat that are, are for all intents and purposes perfect strangers to me but i feel like i know them all very personally and intimately now um the the sense of sort of uh, collaboration community and, and positivity and critical thinking that we get from this audience um it, it's you know like i said I've, i spent this weekend at a, at a wedding in, in calgary where there was a lot of journalists there um some from all over the country and they like they're paying attention to what we're doing and that means something. That means that, you know, we're we're checked in. We've got our finger on the pulse. We know what, you know, we, we try to have a sense of, of what are the, you know, I think as you put it in the in the conversation, the promo to Real Talk, the, the real conversations that you're having around your kitchen table, because that's what people want to talk about. So I'm just privilege that you you dragged me along this weird ride with you the, the show feels like it hit overdrive like we hit that gear we were looking for on the highway and, and it allowed us uh, to achieve new levels of editorial production sarah when you joined the team um what's been the biggest surprise for you 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 had had i'm not sure like we've not really gotten into the the details of your 
professional career, your history, you've not really outlined it mm. uh, to the audience, but you've had a ton of experience in the podcast space on both sides of the microphone. Yeah. Uh, you've taught others how to podcast. You've participated in short and long form storytelling. So you brought a lot to the mix. Um, what surprised you most or what has surprised you most through your first approximately half a year or so here as part of the team? That you have a tendency to ask me questions that I am not prepared for. Ah. <laughs> and then I it just... kind of No, to be honest, it's true, isn't it? Because you signed up to produce a show and then yet from time to time you get put on the spot on some pretty hot button stuff. Yeah, but I appreciate it. Um, I'm just giving you a hard time, Ryan. Uh, oh, man, there are, there are a lot. Um, I think... The ones that I I really appreciate is when we get really uncomfortable. Yeah. So, uh, you know, talking, saying things that ca- that have not been said, or we kind of, you know, get danced around a lot of the time. So, one of my favorite conversations was disability and sex. Yeah. Um, that, that was, was amazing. That roundtable. That was one of my favorite conversations. Um, just because it's like we can't talk. Yes, we can talk about that, and we not only can we, we should. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one. Uh, when we had the opioid um, uh, advocate on talking about use and um, opioid poisoning, it was just, yeah, I just, I love getting to hear people's personal stories. Um, There's this kind of mantra of journalism. Mm. um, And I'm not sure whether or not I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm certainly a talk (laughs) show host. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been said that journalists should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Mm. And I think that that's been a driving force through the course of my career. And I think that it's an important part of the bedrock. Uh, one of the pillars that this show is built on. It's been interesting for me to see how some guests have flown or not flown in front of some audience members. So, uh, some people, you know, have have indicated a willingness or a desire to go to the uncomfortable spaces. And then we realize it's so long as those uncomfortable spaces align with their views and perspectives. And one of the things that I'll commit to continuing to do, and one of the things that I think we can do even better is to bring on dissenting voices. I'm not talking about a Donald Trump both sides type bullshit, but I'm talking about perspectives that may be unpopular with an audience that can risk becoming too comfortable gathering with like minded individuals every single morning. And so you can expect conversations like that to continue. Sam, it wouldn't be fair if I didn't put you on the spot in the same way. I'm curious (laughs) to know you've been here. You've sat here for nearly every single episode. We've had you on assignment a couple of mornings and one of our associate producers, Emily, has jumped in. But for the most part, you've been here. And I'm curious to know, is there one interview? You can't name the top five. You can't okay. say you can't say the prime minister. You can't say Julie Rohr. You can't say the mayors. You can't say the day for tre- truth and reconciliation. Is there one guest that you were particularly chuffed about? One that you were really, really impacted by? Yeah, I um, OK. Can't name the top five because I, I would actually say my top moment was in the top five. I. <laughs> well, what is that I, top moment real quick? Top moment was Trudeau. Trudeau. And, 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 I thought and, that was amazing. And yeah. reason being is uh, he's a man who does a lot of press and he was very, 
human on our show. I think I've never seen him give an interview like that. And that was that was what really resonated with me. Is 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 not it's not the high profile, it's not the get, it's the fact that it was a little bit disarming. It was a different side. But I, I You know what a lot of people don't know about that Trudeau interview, and I think it's worth mentioning, is that there was zero correspondence with the PMO ahead of time with regards to the content or the focus of that interview. The Prime Minister came in blind, no prep on the questions he was going to face and took essentially rapid fire questions. We were the first media entity in the country to get the prime minister's comment on that George Floyd verdict on the killing of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin uh, and his conviction. The prime minister was the first to comment. We were quoted that interview on the national uh, in the Boston Globe in the Washington Post. That was a big moment for this show. The prime minister had no briefing and none of the questions were screened. And that's not always the case with politicians. And that's something whether you like the prime minister or not, that is definitely notable about that interview oh, yeah. back on April 20th. OK, so not outside of the top five, your outside, favorite interview. OK, outside of the top five, it was the first time we ever had uh, Chief Billy Morin on. Yeah. And when he just dropped the mic and said, well, maybe we should just buy the railroad. I was just like, this guy's ballsy. Yeah. I'm following this guy. He was talking about the blockades, of course, uh, relating to to energy infrastructure expansion. And and uh, that was a that was a I mean, that was a time of, of heightened emotion across the country. Uh, Chief Morin is I was gonna say is gonna is gonna do great he's already doing great things he's the youngest elected chief in you know first nation history and uh and and i see a a, i mean if he's not already there a bright future for chief Morin, who's been on the show a couple of times um is is there was there one interview for you in particular that you booked i think of like like i think of dr michael mann who is on the show just amazing uh perspective on climate i think of like some of our more prominent conversations i mean i even think some of the you know we talk about news politics and pop culture like brooklyn heights from from drag race and yes, i think of yes. caitlin bristow uh co-host of the bachelor the bachelorette i mean that was a, a super fun one caitlin a leduc girl that's gone on to to glean millions of followers and and she's you know rolled out her own wine business and she's got a successful television career that was a lot of fun to talk to her about about her roots as a so-called small town alberta girl was there one that's really resonated with you that may, maybe one you didn't see coming or, or one that left a real impact on you hmm. i mean uh behind the scenes i do a little dance every time i get a yes yeah um it's yeah sam knows it well it's true yeah <laughs> um when i hear back from somebody uh it's it's just like yes like, so what was the biggest yes oh man well Mel- malcolm gladwell and, and marie like those were the two i mean but there's mark messier so today's a huge day for you yeah, I Personally. mean, I, I was I'm just I'm stoked about being able to put the ask out there um, and yeah, and then yeah, and hearing back and and making sure that we've you know, we've got the prep there for you to uh, to knock the show out of the park. Uh, I, I like the other the other day where we pulled back the curtain a little bit. Uh, our top 40 under 40 round table and I was talking to <laughs> Panita McBrien and oh and you insisted that I ask her about the circumstances of her predecessor's dismissal from that role his technically his resignation as uh, editor of the downtown business association and that was a big one I think for the moment for people to be able to see how the show functions editorially behind the scenes and the checks and balances and how my feet are held to the fire not just by audience members and not just by guests uh, but by you as well, by both of you. 
Yeah, um, I appreciate you bringing that up, Ryan, because in that uh, exchange, I, I pushed you and I said, we, we need to ask about the departure of the previous executive director. And, yeah. um, and then Panita said, we hadn't been asked that. The Downtown Business Association had not been asked that. And I, I was pumped because we are, we strive and we commit to real talk. And so if we're not asking that question, we're not doing real talk. And so when she acknowledged that they had never been asked that before, I was just, I was ecstatic because that means we are, we are checking that box. Well, you got to walk the walk. And I think that the audience has those expectations and, and that's something that will continue to endeavor to deliver on. We, Stephanie's requesting RuPaul. Uh, I'm says, trying, man. I'm trying. <laughs> Deborah says Sheldon Kennedy was very memorable. I'd love to see him on the show again, for sure. Um, others of you, Carrie is saying she loves uh, when Dr. Jody Carrington's on the show. And, and, you know, obviously that for us is is huge. Every morning she comes in, she brings her own audience with her. And we have a lot of fun. Heather says she also loved Dr. Michael Mann on the show, says Katie Mack was amazing as well. Katie's knowledge and love of of astronomy and space and her helping us understand her just like magnetic nerdiness. Yes. Like, you know, yeah, that's a great band name. Actually, magnetic, magnetic nerdiness. nerdiness. I like that. Sam um, is the front man. Yeah. Tracy <laughs> says a meaningful moment for her. Uh, says Ryan, when you interviewed uh, the family, the, the sons and the wife of the man who lost his life, saving the dog says that still resonates with me. How about this from Kim? Uh, Kim says, my knowledge and understanding of uh, First Nations, Métis rights and truths in our country has been a year-long journey with this show and this live chat and the books that have been recommended. That uh, means a lot to us. Linda Ray simply says, raw and real. It means a lot to us. Are they talking about Grand Dog Essentials or are they talking about the show? Oh, well done, Hoyles. <laughs> well done, you're keeping it rolling along like the teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge that make sure that your family stays on the road with the vehicle you need, especially in adverse weather conditions. New to the 4x4 shop, you see all these conflicting reports and advertisements and you want to make sure that you, you invest where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. People have been trusting the Jeep brand since 1941. And the selection's better than it's been in a year and a half at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge right now. So whether you're looking for that new Grand Cherokee L with the third row of seating or, or the Gladiator or any of the other inclusions in the Jeep lineup, you'll find better selection at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Of course, along with those Ram 1500 pickups than you will anywhere else. You can check them out online through the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. As mentioned... $500 up for grabs by way of an anonymous real talker who simply wanted to show a little love to the audience that they're so proud to be a part of. All you have to do is tweet at us today. Use the hashtag RealTalkRJ and let us know what your biggest highlight was for today's show. We'll take a look at midnight, mountain time, 2 a.m. Eastern, and one of you is going to be awarded 500 bucks, no strings attached. My thanks to you know who you are coming up tomorrow on the show is it true did a prominent alberta political columnist really get into a shoving match 
with a Kenny loyalist at this weekend's AGM. We'll ask him directly. Rick Bell makes his Real Talk debut. Plus, the return of Mayor Craig Snodgrass out of High River and country star Cor Blund. We're talking coal on the eastern slopes. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 